Hello, and welcome to another edition of Listen In. I'm Kevin Lamangi, and I'm bringing you a solo episode of our podcast that once again verges dangerously on military history, covering the previous military experience of the Canadian volunteers who fought in Spain. Karina and I were discussing the other day how we haven't uh, contrived enough links between our podcasts and the broadcasts from Madrid that gave us our name. So today I'm recording in my apartment, close to a construction site where they're doing some blasting. I hope you appreciate the added authenticity. To start, I'll note how it's remarkable that how many of the volunteers found themselves on the same side of the lines for the first time in Spain, after fighting for competing imperial powers in World War I, or competing nationalist or revolutionary forces in Poland, Russia, Ireland, and elsewhere. About 200 volunteers had some form of previous military experience, with most of those fighting in World War I or the civil and revolutionary wars that followed. It's hard to make too many generalizations, but we can say that in addition to lots of service in World War I, many other volunteers served in the military from about 1922 to 1926, especially the Finns and the Poles. The numbers I share below are pulled from the most recent information we have about the volunteers, but they're far from comprehensive. They're just meant to give the broadest possible overview. Virtually all the volunteers' information is self-reported, and we only have access to a small number of the military records. So some of what you hear below is almost certainly untrue. I should also note that if you were to add up the total instances of military service below, you would get a number much bigger than 200, as many of the volunteers served in multiple armies. Throughout this time period and throughout this episode, it's useful to know some terminology. Maybe most important is the distinction between white and red forces as they appeared in Eastern Europe in the early 20th century. Red as a color has long been associated with socialism and communism. On the other hand, white indicated both commitments to anti-communism and was also associated with absolute monarchy in Russia, where the division red and white first began. Some of the volunteers we have listed here fought in white armies or national armies that fought red armies only to come to Canada and join the Communist Party within a few years. There are a few explanations for this. If your home happens to fall in the territory of one force or the other, you're more likely to end up fighting for that army, regardless of your own ideological convictions. We should also note that white armies were big tent organizations, made up of everyone from bourgeois liberals to social democrats to arch-reactionary monarchists. Motivations for joining were diverse, and like most civil wars, geography was often a determining factor. Again, if you found yourself in red or white territory, you often had little choice about your allegiance. Still, it bears remembering that these were reactionary armies, and Leon Trotsky, commander of the Red Army during the war, later wrote about the conflict, saying that if the whites had won, the word for fascism wouldn't be Italian, it would be Russian. I should also note that the selection of volunteers we talk about below was determined more by access to biographical information than anything else. As you'll hear in the case studies of Yank Levy and Harry Bozela at the end of the episode, only certain volunteers do we have enough information about to actually sketch out a full life's portrait. So we can start here by covering some of those who served in the Canadian, British, and U.S. armies, mostly during World War I. Michael Petru's book notes that 25 volunteers served in the Canadian military during the First World War, while 29 had been in the militia or reserves, and three more were members of the Canadian Officer Training Program at universities. I'm sure that all of our Canadian listeners have heard enough about how the Vimy Shuffle was the birth of a nation to last a lifetime, 
So we'll forgo too many specifics and share the stories of some of the more interesting volunteers here. Norman Bethune served in the Canadian Army as a stretcher bearer before getting wounded and returning to Toronto to complete his medical studies. He'd served in the Royal Navy as a physician from 1917 until demobilization. He then spent 14 months on a British aircraft carrier, once garnering a reprimand for, quote, indiscreet remarks in public. In 1920, Bethune briefly served in the Canadian Air Force's Medical Corps, making him the only volunteer on our list to serve in three branches of the Canadian military. Elias Averzora, a Belarusian who came to Canada in 1913, was an ambulance driver with the CEF in World War I. He was a teacher back in Canada and joined the Lincolns in Spain and was killed quite early in February 1937. Two volunteers claimed to have served with the British Expeditionary Force in Russia just after the First World War. George Steer was born in London, England, in 1900, and said he served in the British Army in World War I. His record notes that he fought in Russia. To me, that seems a little unlikely, given how few British soldiers were in Russia, even during the North Russia intervention, where the British, Canadian, French, Japanese, and so on tried to help the White Army fight the Bolsheviks, but it isn't out of the question. Regardless, Steer came to Canada in 1925, and served with the Canadian Army before joining the CPC in 1933 and going to Spain quite early, in May 1937. He served with the Lincolns and then the medical service with the MacPaps. He was wounded quite badly in July 1937, spending eight months in hospital. He returned to Canada in February 1939 and died May 1990 in Leamington, Ontario. Edgar Lemke, who was born in Russia in 1883, said he served four years in the BEF as a sergeant, including time in the North Russia expedition. He came to Canada in 1924 and was an organizer for the CCF and member of the Friends of the Soviet Union. In Spain, he joined the CP of Spain and was transferred around quite a bit because of his language skills, as he spoke English, Russian, German, Spanish, French, and Norwegian. He died in 1960 in a mental hospital in British Columbia. James Black of Kingston, Ontario, served in the Canadian Army's Medical Corps, preparing him to be a medic and head orderly for the MACPAPs. It's unclear exactly what happened to him, but Hugh Gardner writes that he was captured and executed after staying behind to treat wounded during a retreat. However, someone of the same name and birthday is listed as traveling to the U.S. from Kingston in 1939. John Deck was a German-American, and he served with the U.S. Army Cavalry, presumably in World War I, and was the adjutant to the chief of staff of the 15th Brigade. He was later transferred to the Lincolns as chief scout and was killed on Mosquito Ridge in 1937. Eugene Fogarty was born around 1897, and his military career points to some of the problems inherent in listing who had the military experience that they claimed. When Fogarty enlisted, he said he had served four years in the Canadian Army and then had attended McGill Medical School for another four years. We can say pretty certainly that this second claim wasn't true. He arrived in Spain in December 1936 and served in the medical unit at Villanueva de la Jara with the Lincolns, staying there after the Lincolns were deployed. It seems his conduct raised some eyebrows as he was called before a committee to investigate his credentials. He refused to answer any medical questions. He was then kicked out of the International Brigades, but not before getting married and, according to the diary of Bob Merriman, commander of the Lincolns, trying to pay the mayor of Villanueva with fake bills. The commander of the entire 15th International Brigade had to intervene and pay off the mayor to head off this scandal. So what's perhaps more interesting, to me at least, is the volunteers who served in European armies, especially those of the Entente during the war. Eight soldiers served with the Austro-Hungarian army, and another four with the German army, one of whom likely served on a soldiers' council during the revolution that contributed to the end of the war. One volunteer is known to have served with the Imperial Russian army during the war. 
We don't know much about the service records of these men, with a couple exceptions. We'll talk more about some of the specifics when we get to the example of Harry Bozalo later. Other than those who fought for the Anglo countries, we also know that one volunteer served with the Serbian army during the war. Otherwise, much of the prior military experience comes from the conflicts involving the states that were formed or reformed as these old empires fell apart. In addition to the insurgent communist revolutions across Europe at this time, we also saw something of a springtime of the peoples. This is especially evident in the number of volunteers we see who were in the Finnish and Polish armies. Finland operated as a semi-independent part of the Russian Empire up until the Bolsheviks seized power in October 1917. At this point, Lenin declared that all peoples that constituted the Russian Empire were entitled to self-determination. This was obviously of interest to the Finns, who had long been organizing and agitating for independence, up to and including receiving military training from the Germans and organizing both red and white militias to prepare for independence. At least one of our volunteers served with the Finnish Red Guards in the Finnish Civil War that lasted from January to March of 1918, when the German army put an end to the Reds' control of the urbanized south of the country. 22 volunteers were members of the Finnish army at some point during the 1920s or 1930s, with most not specifying their unit or length of service. One volunteer, Walter Forsman of Vipuri, said he fought in the Revolutionary Army in Finland in 1923, though I'm not entirely sure what that means. He says he later served with the Finnish Bicycle Corps from 1926 to 1927 before joining the Finnish Communist Party in 1930. This landed him in some hot water. It's unclear if he ever did come to Canada, but he served at the MACPAPS. Another Finn, Edvin Backman, had one-year cavalry experience with the Finnish Army and was a miner, farmer, and lumber worker in British Columbia, joining the CPC and the On to Ottawa trek before going to Spain. He was separated, or deserted, from the MACPAPS at the Ebro, and joined the 11th International Raid for a while, until he could return safely to his unit. Veterans of the Polish army were also overrepresented in the Canadian contingent in Spain, with 24 men saying they had spent some time in the Polish army in the years after the First World War. Poland wasn't an independent state during the war, as it had been partitioned by the German Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire a hundred years earlier. Much of the war, though, was fought on Polish territory, and many Poles fought and died during the conflict. The independent Polish state that was formed after the war, the Second Polish Republic, began expanding its territory and was immediately thrown into wars against the newly formed Ukrainian armies, the Soviet Union, and Lithuania. Mateo Drosch served as a machine gunner in the Polish army for two years, either during or just after the Polish-Soviet War. In Canada, he was a lumber worker and a communist, and served, possibly as an ambulance driver, with the MacPaps in Spain. Stefan Hasiuk served 25 months in the Polish army as a gunsmith with the 10th Cavalry Regiment. He also worked as a carpenter and something called a circus mechanic, and was a member of the CPC and its affiliated organizations. He fought with the MACPAPS as an instructor and later on the lines, and returned to Canada in October 1938. He returned to Ukraine in 1956. One volunteer, Bozo Lulik, is said to have served in something called the Slav Army in 1921, from my research, I assume that that's the army of the Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, a state which would be renamed Yugoslavia a few years later, but it's hard to say. At least three volunteers did certainly serve with the Yugoslav army. If one volunteer's life can illustrate the constant transients of borders in Europe at this time, Luka Baltic would be a good choice. He was Serbian and born in Croatia, and went to school in Temescar, Romania, which was then part of Hungary. He fought with the Red Guards during the Hungarian Revolution of 1919 and came to Canada in April 1928. 
though he returned to Europe in 1931 and served with the Yugoslav army before coming back to Canada in 1933. He taught at the CPC school in Ontario, and in Spain he was a political commissar for the Juro Yakovic Battalion. He returned to Canada in 1939 and died in 1974. Four volunteers said they spent some time in the Czechoslovakian army, including Josef Bolo. He was born in Hungary, served 18 months in the Czechoslovakian army from 1924 to 1927 as a rifleman and motorcycle courier. He came to Canada in 1929. Here he was a coal deliveryman and active in the Canadian Labor Defense League and the Hungarian Workers Club. He was in an autonomous transportation unit in Spain and was likely of great help in coordinating soldiers of various nationalities, as he spoke Hungarian, English, Russian, Spanish, and a language listed as Czechoslovakian. Three volunteers served with the Romanian army, three with the Lithuanian army, at least one of them specified he fought with the white Lithuanian army. One volunteer fought with the Ukrainian People's Army and one with the Ukrainian Red Army, which were two of several competing Ukrainian armies or militia that fought each other or other regional powers. I'm afraid I don't know enough about that history to accurately sum it up. I do know that Ivan Malko was a Ukrainian who fought in the Austro-Hungarian army in the First World War, and then the Red Army in Ukraine in 1919. He came to Canada in 1928 and served with the International and Spanish Artillery Battery in Spain. He was hospitalized with a busted eardrum and returned to Canada in 1939. Four volunteers said they served in what I'm interpreting to be the Red Army in Russia, although some may have been part of the various Red Armies in either Ukraine or Poland. The Red Armies marching around Eastern Europe were quite like various other revolutionary armies of history in that they had diverse organizational structures and differing degrees of centralization that changed a lot over time. The only volunteer we can be confident about having served in the Red Army in Russia or the USSR, depending on the exact date, is Kornil Zigarevich. He was Polish or Belarusian and arrived in Canada in 1927, where he worked as a roofer in Toronto and joined the CPC in 1930. In Spain, he served with the 1st Group Artillery and was killed in a car accident in 1938 in Pozoblanco. Quite interestingly, uh, Joaquin da Silva said he fought in the Mexican Revolution's Army of Liberation for four months, which I think would mean he fought in Emiliano Zapata's Army of the South. Short term of service in this army would make sense, as it was a loosely organized army, and its peasant soldiers would often return home to farm during or after a campaign. It's useful to understand the Mexican Revolution, which took place from 1910 to 1920, as somewhat like the Russian Revolution. The revolutionaries were far from a united group, and after they achieved their initial goal of forcing out the authoritarian leader, in this case the president Porfirio Diaz, the rebels split into factions that wanted revolutionary social change and those who wanted to preserve private property and the social order. Zapata's Liberation Army of the South was made up of peasants, largely from the state of Morelos, who wanted land reform, and who continued to fight against the new president, Madero, and then successive leaders. If you're looking for more on this topic, I really recommend Mike Duncan's Revolution series, which is making its way through the Mexican Revolution at the moment. But back to De Silva. In Canada, he lived in Vancouver and traveled to Spain in 1938. He was arrested for desertion and imprisoned from May 1938. Here's the section where I'm going to talk a little bit about Irish volunteers who claim to have served in the various militias and armies in Ireland in the early 20th century. I'll start by saying I'm going to try to give an overview of Irish anti-colonial politics in the 20th century. And if you want some more context beforehand, now would be a good time to have your own musical interlude where you listen to some Irish rebel music and look up all the names they reference on Wikipedia. That's how I got my start. So, there's 800 years of British colonial history in Ireland, and accordingly 800 years of resistance to colonialism. 
Only a few groups in this history are directly relevant to our stories here. The Irish Volunteers were founded in 1913 as a relatively loosely organized nationalist organization that was descended from a variety of other nationalist organizations. The group split in 1914 over the question of supporting the British war effort on the continent, as more conservative elements thought that supporting the war was the best way to ensure the British honored their promise of home rule for the country. A much reduced Irish Volunteers organization continued to oppose the war and led a limited, unsuccessful, and very famous insurrection on Easter weekend 1916, known as the Easter Rising. The Irish Republican Army was founded in 1917 out of the remnants of the Volunteers and their allied group, the Armed Workers' Organization, the Irish Citizen Army. Sinn Féin, a Republican political party, won the 1918 election in Ireland and actually established the Irish Republic that had been formally proclaimed during the 1916 Irish Rising. This meant that the Irish Republican Army became the official armed forces of this new state in 1918 and spent 1919 to 1921 fighting a guerrilla war against the British. In 1920, the British offered more independence for Ireland, with the country being split into north and south. Demographics meant that large swaths of the North were Unionists who were loyal to the UK, and some gerrymandering and other shenanigans, electoral and otherwise, meant that the British government ensured it would stay that way. In this Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1920, the British were promising a status similar to that of Canada at the time, self-government for Ireland but within the confines of the British Empire. You can imagine why this would be contentious, as some people were simply tired of fighting and others were committed Republicans who wanted nothing to do with the empire. The Irish Free State, as it was now known, was plunged into two years of civil war, as the IRA and other organizations split into pro-treaty and anti-treaty forces, sometimes known as nationalists and republicans, just to confuse the matter with our Spanish Civil War knowledge. In the end, the pro-treaty forces, the Free Staters, who were much better armed and supported by the British government, one against the Republicans who wanted to establish a completely independent Ireland. The Irish Free State remained a part of the Commonwealth until 1948, when a coalition government declared the Republic of Ireland. Northern Ireland remains a part of the UK to this day, despite 30 years of both violent and non-violent struggle in the North by organizations that have competed in claims to be descendants of the old IRA from the 20th century. To get a better feel for the political and social climate of early 20th century Ireland, specifically Dublin, I've just read and enjoyed uh, Roddy Doyle's novel, A Star Called Henry, about a working-class Dubliner who's a member of the Irish Citizen Army and a close comrade of James Connolly, the Irish Republican Socialist martyr who lent his name to an Irish unit in the Spanish Civil War. With all that history out of the way, we can note that several of the Irish-Canadian volunteers ended up on different sides of the Irish Civil War. At least two of them had fought for the Irish Free State, while several others had almost certainly fought with the anti-treaty IRA Irregulars. You have to wonder if this ever came up after a bit too much Spanish wine. None of our volunteers claimed to have fought in the Easter Rising, though James Wolfe of Limerick joined the Irish Volunteers in 1916 and the IRA in 1918, fighting in both the War of Independence and the Civil War. He was captured in 1922 and released in 1923 before coming to Canada in 1924, where he organized sailors and loggers as a party member. He died in Spain from a grenade in 1937. Eight other volunteers claimed to have served with the IRA at some point. Here are some of the more interesting characters. Joe Kelly of Belfast fought with the British Army in World War I and then joined the IRA. He came to Canada in 1922 and was a miner, lumber worker, union organizer, and Communist Party member before going to Spain. In Spain, he was promoted to lieutenant with the Lincolns, Company 3, as well as uh, becoming a training officer. 
He died in 1977 in Kamloops. Paddy McAllister, also of Belfast, joined the IRA in 1926 and came to Canada in 1928. In Canada, he joined the Communist Party and worked as a waiter and logger. In Spain, he served with the MacPaps Company 4. He returned to Belfast after the war and was a member of the Workers' Party of Ireland until his death in 1997. John McGilligut, from County Kerry, was a member of the IRA from 1918 to 1926 in the Brigade Kerry No. 2, meaning he likely would have fought in the Irish Civil War and Irish War of Independence. He came to Canada in 1929 and served in the militia with the 3rd Field Ambulance. He was variously a miner, a seaman, farm worker, boxer, relief camp resident, and transient. He joined the CPC in 1934 and participated in the Ottawa Trek in 1935. He was an infantry instructor in Spain, and he fought in a number of battles, for which he was decorated for bravery. He served in the Merchant Marine in World War II and died in British Columbia in 1984. Patrick O'Dare fought with the IRA and then the Free State Army from 1922 to 1929, serving with the 6th, 9th, 14th, 17th, and 23rd Battalions as a sergeant. He was a miner and organizer of the unemployed in Canada, and he arrived in 1929, where he was an active member of the Communist Party and its associated organizations. He was thrown in jail for 15 months for, quote, inciting a riot. One obituary says that he drew the attention of the Saskatoon police for teaching rebel songs to the marchers, and this is why he was jailed. He was deported in 1934. In Spain, he eventually was promoted to be a company and battalion commander of the British Battalion before becoming a major with the British Army's Pioneer Corps in World War II. To finish things off today, we'll tell the stories of two volunteers who we know a little more about. Harry Bozello had quite an interesting life, and it seems appropriate to devote some more time to one of the many Ukrainian Canadians who fought in Spain. I should note that the only reason I was able to find out this information about Harry Bozello was because of the very helpful researchers at the Loyal Edmonton Regiment Museum, so thank you to them for sending along this information. Harry Bozello served in the First World War, first with the Austro-Hungarians and then the German army. Bozello was born in 1901 in an area that was then Austrian, but is now Western Ukraine. When Bozello was five, his mother died and his father moved to Canada in search of work. Harry and his brother were taken in by his uncle, where they lived until 1914, when the uncle was drafted into the Austro-Hungarian army and killed in action. Harry's brother was then drafted, and Harry went with him to enlist because he would have been left alone otherwise. His brother didn't pass the physical, but he did, and Harry became a soldier for the first time. He was given a bit of training in Slovakia and then sent to the Eastern Front. After a short time, he was transferred to the Western Front to reinforce the German army. It doesn't seem he remembers much about where exactly he fought, only that it was against the French army. By the end of the war, the German army was pretty much in full retreat, and the disorganization was such that everyone had broken ranks. After returning to the Austrian border, he returned to his hometown, only to find that it was becoming a war zone, as newly independent Ukrainian and Polish forces vied for territory. Bozello met up with his sisters, his sister's husband told him he should present himself for service with a new Ukrainian army that was being assembled. The account from the Loyal Edmonton Regiment newsletter that I'm mostly drawing from says he served with the Ukrainian Liberation Army, though from what I can tell that was actually the name of a collaborationist force in World War II. Based on his account of fighting Polish forces, it seems he served with the Ukrainian Galatian Army, although his service was short-lived and a good deal of his time was spent evading capture. He was eventually captured by the Polish forces who had occupied the area and dragged before the commander. He was lucky enough to meet the Polish commander's assistant, 
a young Polish friend of the Bozelo family, who Harry had helped avoid jail time for refusing service in the Ukrainian forces. This friend ensured that Harry was set free, and that he got a job on the railroad. By this point, it's about 1919, and Harry is living in an area occupied by Polish forces. Harry's father in Canada had established himself quite well on his own farm in Alberta, and sent enough money for Harry and his brother Bill to sail for Canada to live with him in 1921. They arrived in time for the harvest in the Athabasca region, although Harry found it difficult to get along with his father's new wife and her children from a previous marriage, so he moved out and went to Edmonton. He worked for years at various jobs, on the railway, as a coal miner, and then again as a farmer in Athabasca, and as the local weed inspector, which I assume has something to do with Alberta's feverish commitment to eradicating rats and other pests. Here's where I end up with a lot of questions about Harry was up to politically from 1921 to 1937. It's not a terrible surprise that the newsletter of his Canadian Army unit doesn't tackle the issue head-on. The author of the article asked Bozello why he went to Spain, and he said, quote, don't ask me. I don't know. I was younger then and had ideas of my own, I guess. End quote. Our other sources list Bozello as having no party affiliation when he went to Spain. So it's possible that he wasn't a Communist Party member, but was a member of other Communist Party fronts or left-wing cultural associations, like the Ukrainian Labor Farmer Temple Association, or simply a reader of one of the many Ukrainian language papers circulating at that time that were concerned about fascism. Bozello arrived in Spain via Massanet in December 1937. He served with the MACPAPs and was captured in March 1938 during the retreats. It was falsely reported that he was executed, and the news of his death reached his father in Alberta. He was imprisoned in the San Pedro de Cardenas camp along with several other Canadians, and was exchanged and returned to Canada in May 1939. It's the timeline here that makes the story so remarkable. Just a few months after Harry returned home, the Second World War broke out in September 1939. He immediately enlisted with the Loyal Edmonton Regiment and was sent to the UK. He served primarily with the Bren Gun Carrier Platoon, which was a platoon made up of armored personnel carriers. He was injured during exercises, but returned to his unit in time for the invasion of Sicily, though he contracted malaria and was eventually moved to a position with the Royal Canadian Ordnance Corps, and spent the rest of the war working in supply in the UK. He returned to Canada with his wife Helen, who he met in 1945, and worked the rest of his career with the Department of National Defense in the Griesbach Barracks in Edmonton. He died in Edmonton in 1989. Now there's one last volunteer I want to talk about today uh, who lived a very different life to uh, just about anyone else you can think of, but uh, definitely a different life than Harry Bozello. Now, this man is Bert Yank Levy. The most important thing uh, for me to say about him is that we don't actually know much about him for certain. Our main source is the introduction to his famous 1940 manual, Guerrilla Warfare, which served both as an instruction manual for British Home Guard volunteers and as a popular bestseller for Penguin Books. Levy was allegedly born in Hamilton, but grew up in the U.S. His place of birth became somewhat contentious later in life when he ran into some legal trouble, but we'll get to that. Among other skills, including a fairly successful boxing career, he certainly had a knack for self-promotion. He knew enough about guerrilla warfare as to suggest that he had participated in some outside of Spain, but we really can't vouch for the veracity of the rest of his claims. I read somewhere it was claimed that Levy personally recruited 1,200 Canadians to fight in Spain, and while I'm not sure if Levy was the originator of the story, I'm positive it was totally untrue, as one man did not recruit 75% of the volunteers. Levy's first taste of war was with the 39th Battalion of the British Army's Royal Fusiliers, also known as the Jewish Legion, 
The Jewish Legion was comprised of 5,000 U.S., British, Canadian, and Palestinian Jews and was organized in 1918 to fight the Ottomans. In appropriately mythic fashion, Levy credits a run-in with the scouts of Colonel T.E. Lawrence as sparking a lifelong interest in guerrilla warfare. After that, Levy claims to have been mixed up in the end of the Mexican Revolution in the early 1920s. We think training local soldiers on a machine gun. Levy also said he fought with Cesar Augusto Sandino against the U.S. domination and later occupation of Nicaragua during the 1920s. It would seem Levy left Nicaragua when the revolutionaries had to turn their attention from fighting the U.S. proxies in the country to fighting the U.S. Navy. The leader of this rebellion, Sandino, will be best known to most listeners as the namesake of the Sandinista National Liberation Front, an armed revolutionary group founded in 1961 that fought a protracted war against the government and U.S.-backed Contras, eventually taking power in 1979 when they ousted the son of the same Somoza who had Sandino assassinated in 1934. The timeline here is a little muddied, but Levy was arrested for armed robbery in 1927 and served a six-year prison term before being deported to Canada. Here he became involved in left-wing politics and traveled to Spain where he served in the British battalion under Tom Wintrington, a British communist journalist and poet. After trying to join the Canadian army in 1940, Levy found himself reunited with Wintrington at an unofficial training school in the UK for the Home Guards which was a militia organized of men who were not allowed to serve in the regular army for a variety of reasons. The Home Guards were jokingly known as Dad's Army, as many of their members were too old for regular military service. They were intended to act as a second line of defense in case of fascist invasion and guarded strategic points around the UK against sabotage. Levy and Wintrington, as well as other left-wing Spanish Civil War vets, unofficially offered their services to train the Home Guards as guerrillas or partisans, and the entire operation was privately funded. The experience led Levy to write Guerrilla Warfare, which mostly focuses on the value of invisibility and the importance of winning the hearts and minds of the local population while fighting a guerrilla war. He writes about Spain a fair amount, noting that the Asturians were especially useful guerrilla fighters against the fascists, as the Asturian Miners' Revolt of 1934 saw working-class people fight the government using hit-and-run tactics. In Spain, the far right had won the elections of 1933, and when Seda, a fascist party self-consciously modeled on the Nazi party, came to power, the miners began a strike that turned into a full-blown uprising. Interestingly, that revolt had been put down by Franco and the Army of Africa on orders from the central government in Madrid. In his account, Levy also approvingly cites Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls as an accurate depiction of guerrilla warfare, particularly the scene where Robert Jordan destroys the bridge. After being encouraged to leave the UK for his political sympathies, Levy trained parts of the US and Canadian armies in guerrilla tactics. He died of a heart attack in 1965, leaving an autobiography unfinished. There have been sporadic attempts at a biography since, but no completed effort. So, as you can see, the military experience of the volunteers was quite varied, and provides something of a snapshot of European revolutionary politics in the interwar period. If you have more information about the military service of a particular volunteer, please let us know through the Volunteers tab of the SpanishCivilWar.ca website. Once again, thanks for listening. No Passaran, Chikiar La, and all power to the Soviets. At the rising of the moon, at the rising of the moon, with your pike upon your shoulder, at the rising of the moon. And come tell me, Sean O'Farrell, tell me why you hurry so. Hush a vocal, hush and listen, and his cheeks were all aglow. 
I bear orders from the captain, get you ready, quick and soon. For the pipes must be together at the rising of the moon. At the rising of the moon, at the rising of the moon. For the pipes must be together 